This has been a remarkable day. For one thing, I thought Uncle Buddy was dead. Uh, I was fairly convinced of that. I had read books about that. But lo and behold, he liveth. So that was remarkable. Then we all had our pictures taken. God help us. We all had our pictures taken. And I had the opportunity of releasing a very reluctant butterfly. Couldn't get the thing to fly, but it finally flew. And then tonight, what a video, what a video presentation. Remarkably done, masterfully done, and so, um, so beautifully done as we reminisce about where God has brought us to this point. I'm always struck by what has gone before me. I don't know about you, but I think of the sacrifices of so many that I've entered into. And I'm fortunate, blessed by God to enter into such outstanding sacrifices and faithfulness and loyalty that folks have shared long before I ever arrived on the scene. You and I have been indeed been handed down a marvelous legacy and we ought to be thankful for it. 150 years, now 151 years. Isn't that outstanding? We thank God for that. We really shouldn't be surprised because the truth is always the truth, isn't it? And God's call, beginning in the Old Testament, echoing down through the New, is still clear today and consistent today. God's a holy God. He is a holy God. And His greatest purpose in Christ Jesus is to make you and me holy too. He's never flinched from that, and culture hasn't dissuaded him. He is still about that business. And for that, we ought to thank God every day that we live. And I trust that this will be for us the norm. You know, I was thinking today that the world probably wonders who in the world we are. Who is that bunch over on that campus? We're, I'm sure some of them are just too afraid to even venture onto the grounds. They probably wonder what in the world we're like. This is not, though, an escape from reality. If anything is real, this is real. This is real. I just want to remind us, God's call to center on His truth is as real as it gets. Thank God for camps like Camp Syker. I mentioned to you last night that my father preached here twice. And as I look at the names of individuals who have been here, um, just to be honest with you, I'm just overwhelmed by all those who have preceded me. I trust that we can simply add to what they have given us. We're going to be looking this evening at love for God's law. Love for God's law. And we're looking at Psalm 119. We're going to be looking at verses 161 through 168. Now, Psalm 119, most of you probably know this, but we'll just do a little bit of um, some, revision, or some, some revisiting of this arrangement of this text. Psalm 119 is an alphabetical acrostic. There are 22 
letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So there are 22 divisions in this psalm, 176 verses. There are eight verses in each section. And if we understood and read Hebrew, we would recognize that as you have a uh, header letter for each section, each verse in that section has a word that begins, and there was light, and begins with that letter. So it is done that way so that whether prayed, whether sung, or, or just put to memory, it is an excellent means of memorizing this vast truth about God. So Psalm 119 is a wonderful psalm. We ought to pay more attention to it than we do. I know that when I was young and I read the psalms, I always looked for the short ones. I mean, I just have to tell you, I did. My dad encouraged our congregation for an entire year to make a commitment. Now, he did not coerce us, but we had to be willing to do it, to make a commitment to read 10 chapters of the Bible a day. I signed that agreement. I think I was in the sixth grade. I found that for a year, 10 chapters a day was a lot, at least for me. So I hate to admit this. I hate to confess this. And this in no way, shape, or form is what I would encourage you to do. But I read Psalm 117 over and over and over again to soothe my conscience about making the commitment that I would read 10 chapters a day. I stayed away from Psalm 119. So I just want you to know that. A few days ago, my wife uncovered a tote full of my growing up years that my mother had put away. I hadn't come across this stuff in years. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I found it somewhat amusing. For about three years, my elementary teachers would put on their assessment of me. Jonathan complains a lot about what he is asked to do. So I'm not sure why I should tell you that. But uh, part of it had to do with the assignments. And one of the teachers said, he asks too frequently, why do we have to do all of this? The last part of the year, though, I want you to know, I made stellar improvement. She put on my note. She said, Jonathan is complaining far less than when the year began. So I feel like grace, God's grace, got a hold of me. All right, so... Psalm 119 is a marvelous psalm. We find key words in this psalm. Law, precepts, statutes, commandments, testimonies, words, ordinances, ways, and truth. Those key words are used over and over again in this great psalm. One of the words which is important for us in the text that we will read in just a moment is the Hebrew word, word Torah, which is often translated law. But before we read it, I want us to understand that our kind of American view or our likely definition of law is very different than the Hebrew meaning of law. Really, what we could say is law is a broad kind of encompassing term where in every way, using all means, God 
takes great pains to speak to us and make His will known to us. He does that in a general way, but He also does that in a special, personal, unique way. So when we, when we look at the word law, let's understand that what God is saying is, I want you to know my will for you. I want you to understand that I've made ways open for you. I want you to know that I have outlined in great detail and with great precision all of the facets of how you then should live in relation and in regard to me. That is our understanding of law. It isn't the notion that we just have a bunch of rules that are given to us to regulate life, and if we break them, there's going to be something to pay. Rather, it is God's great desire to make Himself known to us, to reveal Himself to us, but especially praise His name to make His will known to us. He wants us to know His will. Could it get any better than that? that God wants us to know His will for us. He wants us to know it. And then He alone enables us to do it. We don't talk a lot about law these days. We think sometimes it's an Old Testament concept. But I want to remind us that Scripture says Jesus did not come to do away with or destroy the law but he came to fulfill it. Now, if we understand the law as God's will, it makes perfect sense. He did not come to do away with it. Rather, he came to fulfill it. So when God has willed something, he is able and he is also in, inclined to accomplish what he has purposed to do. So every time we look at God, we can be aware of the fact God's after something with us. Not only is he after us, but why is he after us? What is his aim? What is his purpose? What is he after? What is he desiring? He wants us to know and then do his will. Can we just agree on that? That God doesn't want to keep us lost in some haze or some fog. He wants us to know his will so we can do it. That's how good and how gracious God is. So there are several things that I want us to just open our hearts and our ears to tonight as we look at these verses together. So let's start with verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. We'll focus our attention primarily on verse 165. Those who love your law 
have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. What a great promise. What a great truth. I don't know about you, but these have been, I believe, some of the most turbulent, chaotic, lawless days, at least in the nation in which we live, than I recall at any other time in my life. Now, I grew up in the 60s, grew up on the West Coast in the 60s, saw some strange stuff in the 60s. But I'll say this, I have never in my life been more horrified by just the blatant lawlessness of our culture. It's frightening. It's frightening. Now, it's not like it's just out in San Francisco where you see on the news individuals just walking into stores and without flinching and without any conscience pang, walking out with at least just under the $1,000 range in stolen goods so that they won't be prosecuted. It's not just there, but I have a son who is uh, a supervisor in, what is it? Uh, Lowe's, in Lowe's. He'd be after me if I forgot that. Not Menards, Lowe's. Um, and they have a store policy that if someone shoplifts in the store, you as an employee will be fired if you impede them in any way. Now, I'll just, I'll just use a very, very deep theological term. That's nuts! I mean, that's where we are in our culture today. In fact, if you wonder if they actually enforce that, they do. There was an individual who was being monitored as he walked to the store, gathering expensive tool after expensive tool after expensive tool. My son followed him. My son is like me. He has a sense of justice. He's also sarcastic. So he just kept saying, Need any help? Need any help? Can I help you with anything? Kept following him through the store. Finally, he turned around agitated and said, leave me alone. I need this stuff. As he tried to walk out the store, a new employee, girl, knew what was going on. She was watching what was happening. And she, in a moment of honesty and in a sense of what's right and wrong, simply moved a cart in front of him and caused him to stop in his gate. She was fired immediately. Okay, have I made my point? We're in a chaotic, lawless, godless day. This is what we get for kicking God to the curb. And this is what we get for telling God, stay out of our business. When we tell God, leave us alone, God's a gentleman. He'll leave us alone. But I'll tell you one thing. There's hell to pay when God exits the scene. So the psalmist says something here that I pray penetrates our own hearts. He speaks of a working of God's grace. He speaks of the possibility of God's will merging with our will 
to where we actually love his law. We love his law. We don't chafe against it. We don't gripe about it. We don't think it's onerous. We don't think it's too much. We don't think God's asking too much of us. We actually love his law, that God can so change our hearts that he can write his law on our hearts so that we love God's law. And the reason we love it is because we love the one who has given us his will, right? If we love him, we love everything that comes from him. If we love him, we love the way that he gives us his will, and we love what he tells us, and we love to follow it. I want to give you just three considerations taken from this text this evening. You know, for, for one thing, before we launch into these, let's remember that God defines sin as lawlessness. Can we remember that? Sin is lawlessness. So to be lovers of God's law is evidence of the fact that God has changed your heart and mine. Does that make sense? We wouldn't love his heart naturally. We wouldn't love his law naturally unless he changed our hearts. So three things that I just want us to consider tonight. Loving God's law is, first of all, it is a guiding passion. Those who love your law. It is a guiding passion. The psalmist says not only is there peace that comes to those who love God's law, but a couple of verses prior to that, the psalmist says, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. He's giving us a balance that I think we need to do our best to maintain, friends. We typically don't like balance, and one of the reasons we don't like balance is it requires effort and energy and intention to maintain. In fact, balance requires tension so that you can maintain it. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and one of the things that Pacific Northwesterners used to do before logging in many respects was um, eliminated, you could watch individuals compete on an annual basis in great logging skills, whether it was wielding an axe, throwing an axe, using a chainsaw. But one of the funnest things to watch was when in a pond somewhere or in a lake, they would get loggers out there to balance on a log. And there's an old saying from the Pacific Northwest that it's easier to fall off of one side or the other than to maintain balance. I watched it, and they would do their best to make it difficult for someone to keep their balance. And they would use that log and stay on that log. It was amazing to watch. The reason they were good at it is they used to float all those logs down the great rivers of Oregon to get them to the mills. You better know what in the world you're doing if you're going to balance on those logs. We don't like balance. Primary reason we don't like balance is we're lazy. I might need to run to the, to the 
closest exit. We're lazy. We're lazy spiritually. You know, we kind of make fun of what the old-timers disallowed on these grounds. I don't know what in the world was wrong with lemonade, but evidently something was really bad about lemonade. I want you to know something. I don't make fun of that for this reason. Whatever they were dealing with in their day, they were serious about honoring God. I commend them for that. Even if it tilted a little bit a certain way and might have been a little overboard in our thinking, I would just say this. They were more sober-minded and they were more serious than most people we find today. And they knew that there was really, in the balance, in the balance heaven or hell. They really knew that. They believed that. And they understood the importance of living a balanced life. God gets too little of our balance. God gets too little of our intention these days. But for those who love the law, there's a guiding passion. Not only did they love God's law, but they had a corresponding, appropriate hatred for what's false. Did we hear that? They didn't hate people. They hated what was false. The psalmist said, because I love your law, I have a corresponding response to what's evil and wicked. I hate it. What's false, I hate. We have become too close friends with that which is evil and wicked. We have laughed at stuff we shouldn't laugh at. And that stuff has crept into our hearts it's poisoned the well because we found it unnecessary to remove it from our lives. If we love God, we'll love what God loves. And if we love God, we'll hate what He hates. Amen. Thanks. I'm glad you came. If we love God's law, we despise and hate falsehood. This love is not humanly manufactured. It's not a result of our sheer force of will. But it's possible for us to have this kind of a, of a response to God. We can have a heart that is yielded to and agreeable to God's will. This love has its proper and proportionate hatred as well. We love what God loves because we love Him. We also hate what God hates because of our love for Him. A holy passion, a holy purpose, God's law for me, and it's personal. When I was a teenager, growing up in the parsonage, my dad was a pastor, I had a brother-in-law who was also a pastor, and my older brother was a pastor. I was surrounded by pastors. I didn't want to be a pastor. I know you've heard this a million times, but you know, I think if you grow up in the pastorate, there are wonderful things, good things, but you think, why in the world would I ever want to do that? So that was me. You know, not only did I complain to my elementary teachers about too much to do, but I also complained about the idea of ever being a pastor. About 16 years of age, God made it very clear to me that 
He was calling me into the ministry. I fought it. I fought it with everything that I had. And it wasn't until I finally, at about age 18, caved in and said, I will do your will, that I finally had peace. God was making not just a universal appeal to me, you need my grace to be newborn, you need my grace to be sanctified entirely, but specifically and to me alone, he was saying, I want you to be a pastor, I want you to be a minister. And I fought it as long as I could. But I ultimately knew that if I loved God, I would have to love His will. If I was going to love God, I had to love His will. And that included God's law for me, not for my brother, not for my sisters, not for my brother-in-law, but I had to love God's will for myself. It's always personal. The guiding passion rules all that is pleasing to the Lord. It equally rules out that which is displeasing to the Lord. You know, we need to avoid the legalisms of the past. The law won't save us. Obeying the law will not provide God's salvation impact for us. It's not works. We know that. But I would say at the same time, we have gone so far away from any temptation to legalism, we are now just into sentimentalism where all we talk about is love and we never talk about law. Love becomes nothing but mushy sentiment. Love becomes nothing but mushy sentiment without the standard of a good will of God made known. Without God's will being disclosed, we can aimlessly wander in our praise of love. Law without love is legalism. Both need to be avoided. Both need to be checked. I've already alluded to this, that the great passion promises, or the guarding passion, promises a great peace. In that verse, we have this wonderful word given to us, those who love your law have great peace. Boy, don't we ever need peace. But he's not talking about world peace, you know, like every beauty pageant there is, what, you know, what, what's the one thing you want in the world? World peace. It's not world peace. It's the peace that passes understanding that God can implant in our hearts because our minds are stayed upon Him, because we love Him, because we serve Him, because we're yielded to Him. That yields a peace that only God can bring to our strife-ridden souls. He is the author of peace. In my own struggle, in my own conflict with God over doing His will, I sabotaged my own peace. We do too. I don't know your hearts, 
but I would just say this tonight. The odds are God, out of a group our size, has made His will personally known to you, and somebody here is fighting that. I mean, the odds are someone is. And if you are, I just want you to know this. You'll never have peace until you quit resisting God's overtures and God's disclosure for you of His will. But as soon as you yield and as soon as you say a decisive yes, God provides a peace that is immeasurable and is frankly mind-blowing for you. And you'll wonder, why in the world did I resist and fight for so long? I remember thinking, the last thing in the world that I want to do is be a pastor. As soon as I said, in, in many respects, I'm whipped, you've won, I'll do it, immediately I had peace like I had never had before. Now, I want you to know something. As some have jokingly said, the ministry would be great if it weren't for people. Don't think that in every minute of ministry I have just had a smile on my face saying to God, thank you, Lord, for giving me this dingbat today. I'm sorry, I, that was an unfiltered moment. Forgive me. Forgive me. Thank you, Lord, for that call at 2 o'clock in the morning about so-and-so's Labrador retriever. Now, I like dogs. I like Labrador Retrievers. Just don't call me 2 o'clock in the morning to pray for your dog. Not every moment in pastoral ministry has been just dripping and oozing joy. But I have never, ever regretted for a moment yielding to God's known will in my life. Never regretted it. They have great peace, and it's present tense possession. They have great peace, and God's peace has them. Isaiah 26, 3 says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. A song that was sung in the land of Judah. This was one of its stanzas. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The peace of God that umpires life's decisions and umpires our hearts is a gift from the God who likes, loves, thrills to give us his will. It also is evidence of a clean and clear conscience. Oh, it's wonderful to have a clear and clean conscience before the Lord. It also offers fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with his children. It also is a marvelous assurance, the witnessing of the Holy Spirit, that there aren't any obstacles or hindrances to peace. A surpassing peace. My brother-in-law, Mike Thompson, served for years at Ashland Theological Seminary as a professor, as well as, in his more recent years, chair of practical or pastoral theology. Mike is just a few months older than I am. We met at Circleville Bible College. We began um, 
fighting at one another on the basketball court and formed a fast and firm friendship before we ever became brothers-in-law. Mike had been in some failing health and it was undiagnosed and he called me and he called my wife last October. He could hardly function and the seminary had gone to everything being online versus in traditional courses. And I thought maybe he was just struggling with that transition. But he called me and the tone of his voice was very, very different. And he said, Jonathan, can you please come and anoint me? He said, something's wrong with me and I don't know what it is. And the doctors can't figure out what it is. It was a Friday and so Sharma and I drove over from Lancaster to Grove City and he asked me to bring oil and anoint him. So I did. We got to his house, I immediately noticed, having grown up in a home where my mom was a nurse, I immediately noticed something was seriously wrong with him. I asked him when his next appointment was to try to figure out, and of course we're in the day of specialists, aren't we? Now if there's a specialist here, just forgive me, but we're in the day of specialists. Trying to get into one is like trying to get into Fort Knox. So I asked him when he was going to get into the next specialist. He said, it's six weeks down the road. So I said, go to Riverside Hospital, go to the ER, and just stay there until they figure out what in the world's wrong with you. He said, really? I said, yes. Monday, he waited until Monday. He went in Monday morning. One or two imaging processes later, they realized he had a cancerous mass in his liver, about one-third the size of his liver. It had been growing likely for seven years. Medical field had missed it the whole time. So not only had we been there on Friday, we went back on Monday when he got that news and we went into his house. He was losing ground quickly. But I will never forget this encounter with my dear brother-in-law, Mike. He said, I want to say something, go on record. He said, I love Jesus with all of my heart. And he said, I'm going to fight this as long as I can. But he said, I just want you to know, I love Jesus with all of my heart. There's nothing between my soul and my Savior. And he said, as far as I know to do, this is what he said, I have done all of his will. Frankly, it was an emotional moment. We were all in tears. We prayed with him. Less than two weeks after that, he was gone at age 61. But I will never forget the assurance witnessed by the Holy Spirit in his heart. I know I have done all the will of the Lord. I'm thankful I was there for that moment, as hard as it was, and I'm thankful that I was able to witness without any question, here's a man who has the peace of God ruling and umpiring his heart. I thank God for that witness. Hear this. Those who love your law have great peace. Great peace. I'll close with this. You know, when evangelists or preachers say that, it means nothing. You get your hopes up, but it really means nothing. Now I'll try to move along. 
Not only do we have a guiding passion and a great peace, but if we love God's law, we have a guarding poise. These are turbulent days. You may have to stand up and be counted as you never thought you would be in this country. Your witness might be attacked and questioned. You might be threatened. I don't believe we're far from those kinds of days, just to be honest with you. And before your life is done on this earth, it is likely we are going to face pressures we never anticipated before. Get ready. Get ready. But don't fear. And don't wonder what in the world you'll say. Jesus said to his disciples, don't you worry about what you'll say. I'll take care of that. You'll know what you need to say in that moment. But I just want us to recognize God gives us poise. We don't have to cower in the corner, and we don't have to look for a cave to hide in. We can have poise that the world is shocked to see. And I'm praying that we'll have that kind of poise. How do I get that out of this verse? And nothing causes them to stumble. Praise God. Praise God. We can be established in the faith. We can be stabilized through the sanctifying work of God in Christ Jesus. We can enjoy an, indiv an, an undivided heart with independent hold on the truth from the fray and from the threats of the world. We can live without their threats imposing upon us because we have the confidence that God is with us. We do not have to limp and lurch through life in spiritual instability. I don't have another message to preach tonight, but I would just say this succinctly. While I believe it's wholesome and I believe it is preparatory and it's one of the prerequisites to receiving the grace and the goodness of God, don't glory in brokenness. I don't know if you got that. We hear a lot today about how broken we are. I would just say this, that doesn't glorify a God who is able to make right what sin broke. I just want us to hear that. Don't stop in Brokenville. I'm kind of lonely up here, but that's all right. While we talk about brokenness, let's understand God does not aim to leave us there. Let's thank God that there is a curative work in God's grace. Praise His name forever. God has a remedy. Jesus didn't come to leave us broken. He came to make us right. He came to make us new. And I want to encourage us in that. Don't glory in brokenness. God can make us fixed in motive, pure in intention, and therefore steadfast and immovable in any kind of unsettling and even threatening circumstances. Look at verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause. But what did he say? But my heart stands in awe of your words. I like that. I like that. In essence, the psalmist is saying, throw at me what you will. I'm standing on a firmer foundation in God. 
stable in evil times, stable in, stable in an evil atmosphere. This world has never been a friend to grace. Get prepared for that. Stable even in temptations. Stable in unexpected shifts of life. Stable. Friends, poise is a witness to our world that we have someone with us and in us who helps us to be more than overcomers, more than conquerors. Paul didn't glory in weakness. You only tell half the story if you say that. Paul did not glory in weakness. He rejoiced in God's superabounding grace that can more than compensate for his weakness, your weakness, and mine, and can make us strong. Praise his name. It's not our strength, but it's God's strength made perfect even in our weakness. So I would just close with this. Do you love God's law? Knowing what we said about God's law, that it is his will made known to you, do you love God's law for you? Or are there kicking points? Are there points at which you are pushing back against God? Are you saying yes to some, but no to other points? Do you love God's law? Do you love his law? I don't know anymore. Um, I'm thankful in the church that I pastor, we're still hearing about individuals called into missions and called to the ministry. I thank God for that. I don't ever consider that losing someone if they're called into ministry. I thank God for that. There's likely someone here, maybe one of our youth tonight, being called into ministry. You know it. God's been putting his finger on it. And you might be pushing back against that. Love God's law. Love his law. You may be longer in the tooth than one of our youth. And there may be something that God is saying that you have pushed back on for a long time. There's no peace until you say yes. There's no peace until you love God's law. Would you stand with me, please? Our Father, we sing a lot of songs where we talk about how much we love you. We talk about what you do and, oh my, what you do in our lives. We sing songs like, hold me fast. That's a great promise. It's a marvelous truth. At the same time, we have to love your law. We have to want to be held fast. We have to agree with you. We need, we need to be in step with your spirit. We need to be in league with you. If there's anybody here tonight that when it comes to the law of God, the will of God, when they hear that, when they hear that phrase, it, it grates on them. It bothers them. It troubles them because they know that there's something unresolved. They've never said yes. They've never agreed. I pray tonight, Lord, we'll quit pushing back against your will to us. I pray that 
whatever you're asking of us to do, that a step of obedience would be the norm, that a response of yes would be what you can expect from us. So help us tonight not to fight the good God you are. Help us not to resist any longer. And if we need to say tonight simply, I want to settle this tonight, I love your law, O God. I pray that you would lead us in that way. Have your way with us, gracious spirit. We will respond. We will obey. In Jesus' name, amen.